Um, if you guys can open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, hopefully you're ready there. Um, man, I used to give people a lot of mess for bring, like using their phones as Bibles. I'm like, come on, like how hard is it to bring a paper Bible to church? Um, but you know what? I would rather you use your phone than nothing. So God's been working on my heart. And I understand that's how a lot of you guys uh, read your Bible. That's totally cool. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, you can just go to the store, download the Bible app, open up to Book of Romans. All right. Um, so uh, if you guys uh, don't have a Bible, we actually have Bibles here too. So if you're like, well, Danny, I don't have a physical Bible. We have Bibles for you. We'd love to give you one. So if you don't have a Bible, come see uh, in anyone really after church and we'll get you one. All right. So to get started, um, we're going to be talking about good news and bad news today. So what's the best news that you've ever gotten? The best news you've ever gotten. Some of you guys, it was maybe getting into the college that you really wanted to get into and you're like, you're like, oh, I got accepted, you're stoked. Uh, maybe it was for, uh, for you when you asked that person who was uh, your girlfriend at the time if they would marry you and they said yes. Uh, my wife said, heck yes, just throw that out there. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe it was the first time you guys found out you're pregnant, you're going to have a baby, you're like, oh, you know. And everyone who's had kids, you're like, oh, congrats. Like, you have no idea what you're getting into. But, oh, praise God. Oh, man, that's awesome, right? Um, and so it's good stuff. Um, another, you know, some of you guys, it's getting the job, it's getting the promotion, right? Good news. These are good news things. Um, but a lot of the times our good news, it's not all the time, the good news saves us from bad news or possible bad news. So let's say you're applying for that college. In, in a real sense, you haven't got in. You might not get in. You might not get into any college, and that's bad news. But you got accepted. Good news. It saved you from that, that bad news. You're uh, dating this girl. You love her. Um, there's, a, there's a possibility she'll, like, dump you and go spend her life with somebody else for the rest of her life. That's really bad news. But she said yes right? Good news saved you from the bad news, right? And so we see that good news saves us from that. And a lot of times our best news comes in the midst of bad news. Um, if, if you've ever been unemployed and, uh, you know, COVID did that with a lot of people and you have no income and you're waiting like for like eight months for your unemployment check to come in, right? Um, and bam, it comes in like great, great news. Parents, you know, we got kids and they're growing and you're like, you know, you're just praying, Lord, would you would you let them have a personal relationship with Jesus? Um, I don't know how that's going to happen because they're such little sinners. Um, but Lord, we know you can do whatever you can. You can do that. And uh, this is the day they give their life to Jesus and they get baptized. Good news, right? Um, some of you guys had children, you know, they went astray in high school and college. And man, it just, it, it, it bummed you out and it weighs heavy on your heart. And then there's that one day that you find out that they want to come home to Jesus, that they want to recommit their lives to the Lord and just good news. And so we see that for good news to be good, it needs to invade bad spaces. Good news comes to save us from the bad news. And as we're going through Romans as a church, um, there's going to be a lot of good news, a lot of gospel, which I'm stoked about. But that good news, it needs to save us from the bad news. I mean, I love the book of Romans. It's, it's one of the most amazing books, if not the most amazing. Debatable. Um, some people have said this is one of the greatest books that were ever written. Now, if we see the Bible as 66 books put into one collection of God's inspired word, and we took out the book of Romans, they say it's, it's the greatest book ever written. Why? 
right? Because it, it's one of the best explanations and display of the gospel of Jesus Christ found in Scripture. Right? Some say that this is Paul's masterpiece, his doctoral thesis, his best heart and mind put into the display of God's goodness, the gospel, and the glory of Christ all in one place. You want to know God? Read Romans. You want to know the gospel? Read Romans. You want to know what your life should look like in light of the gospel? Read Romans. Our heart in Romans is that the gospel would weigh on us in such a way that would empower us to live for Jesus and follow him in everyday life. And so we see in this, in this book that Paul's going to lay out his argument of the gospel, right? And, and we see this, this the, the argument starts with why. Why are we in such new need for the gospel, this good news? And so we're going to spend from today all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, really, um, to show us why we need the gospel, okay? It will present a dark picture of humanity, but it's going to be the backdrop on which the bright jewel of the gospel shines all the brighter. So today through chapter 3, we're talking about the why, the bad news. So just prepping you guys for some heaviness, like the Lord just inserted Mother's Day next week for your guys' like well-being, because it's going to be some heavy weeks um, if you know the book of Romans. But if you hang with me today, we'll not only see the bad news, but the beauty of the good news. See, most of us here have already been saved from the bad news. But our tendency as God's people is to run back to bad habits, run back to, to bad patterns, to old lies, to things that our hearts weren't made to run to. And so hopefully today, my prayer is that, that God will show us through this passage a way to the path of, of restoration, healing, and victory. So you guys ready for that? Ready? All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much um, for this passage. We thank you so much for your truth. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. God, we pray this morning that you would open up this passage to our hearts, that by your spirit you would give us understanding that leads to transformation. God, we need you to speak today. God, I need you to speak today. God, and so would you pour out your spirit, show us more of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so going over Romans 1, 16 and 17 last week with Pastor Mike was awesome. We got to see how powerful and important the gospel is. We saw that we needed a righteousness that wasn't our own. And, and we see Paul's eagerness to share the good news, that we would have that, that same good news. But that raises the question, why do we need the gospel that Paul is so eager to preach? Why do we need our, our received righteousness to be in right standing with God? Well, Paul answers that in verse 18. So look down with me, verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. Why do we need the gospel? It says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All right, one verse at a time. Don't worry, don't get scared. Here we go. So for verse 18, right, it starts with the word for, right, which makes us look back. Oh, he's explaining something that he just said. So it flows out of verses 16 and 17. So what we see in verse 18 is, is Paul is showing us that the gospel is necessary not simply to make me happy, but because there's such a thing as God's wrath that I face. Paul's confidence, joy, and passion of the gospel for the gospel rests under the assumption that all of humanity apart from the gospel, right, is under God's wrath. So they need to hear the gospel, right? The word wrath here in verse 18 in the Greek, right, is this word orge, right, wrath. It refers to a settled, determined, just anger 
Okay, not to the one that we're more familiar with as people, the momentary, emotional, and often uncontrolled anger, which is a different word completely, right, which is thumos, right? And we're, we're used to this kind of wrath, like, you know, you, um, if, you got, if you're a parent, you know, your kids are probably the thing that bring out wrath most in your life. If that's maybe just me. I didn't even know I had a yelling voice. I didn't know what that voice was until I had kids. Um, and so... We see that, you know, this, your kid's not listening to you time and time. Like I've told you a hundred times, you know, or you're doing something and you're busy and they're just like, daddy, daddy, hold on, I'm doing something. Daddy, daddy, you're like, ah, oh! you know, it's like the Hulk wrath comes out. Um, maybe you don't got kids, but you got a dog. So it's simple, you know, it's close. And, and so the dog's like, you know, you come home, it's like, you know, eating through the couch again. Um, or your favorite slipper, or doesn't know how to use the bathroom in the right places, whatever that is. And you're like, Fido, and you're like, ah, you know, uh, wrath. Um, maybe one that we're more familiar with, uh, if you watch football and your, your football team loses. Okay, your family knows the wrath. You might not have recognized it yet, but they're like, all right, hey, honey, we're going to go to Chili's for dinner. You just, you stay here. We're going to go because uh, you're a little, you're upset right now. Um, and so we recognize, see, that is not the kind of wrath, okay, that we're, that we're talking about here. God's wrath is very different than human wrath. God's wrath, his settled, fair, and right anger is against the sin that has ravaged his children and that those who continue in it. Paul says this is a present reality and it is being revealed in verse 18. He does not say that the wrath of God will be revealed. Though it will in the future, there is a, there is a future wrath, but that's not what he's referring to right here. Right? There's a wrath that's already being seen now, today. And this prompts us with two questions. Why is it being revealed and how is it being revealed? So why, okay, back to verse 18. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. His wrath is being revealed because of our ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness is the sin... Um, the sin of, of us living like God doesn't exist. Living in rebellion and sin against him. Right, it's, it's ungodliness is the destruction of the relationship between us and God. It's replacing him with ourselves where we're God and where we make the rules. Ungodliness. And this is what blows my mind. The wind goes where, it, where he sends it. Animals migrate in their God-ordained seasons and all of creation obeys his commands and call. Yet we're the only ones who have the audacity to look God in the face and say, no, we're going to do what we want to do. Our ungodliness leads to the sin of unrighteousness. And that leads to the destruction of our relationships with other people. Right? It's, it's, it's if we are God, then life's all about us. Right? And then so, so we do the wrong thing and we sin against others because life's all about us. That selfish and self-centered bent causes us to sin against one another. And so these two sins are, are, are the breaking of what Jesus called the two greatest commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor, right? Ungodliness, broken, unrighteousness that's broken, right? And because of these, Jesus is saying, the word is saying that, that God, that the, the, the wrath of God is being revealed. And it says that, that we actually suppress that truth, like we, there's like this truth that we know that we actually suppress the re reality of God. And so his wrath is being revealed. And so um, I'm going to take a quick little pause real quick to use a mic that's not popping.
Testing. We're good? Oh, it's way better. All right, here we go. So, um, so some of you guys right now are like, man, well, how could God hold people accountable to something that they don't know? Right, well, uh, Paul addresses that right out the gate. Um, so our, our first point, yes, it's our first point. It says, we've all known God. We've all rejected God. That's our first point, okay? So look down with me, verse 19 through 21. Read along with me. It says this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. All right. So this passage is one of the verses that we use that, that to show that how God has revealed himself in his creation. Right, and I love like I love speaking about creation because we live in Hawaii. Like we're blessed to live in Hawaii. Amen. It is beautiful. I love it. Um, if you guys uh, remember one of my uh, one of the the last teachings that I did, I, saw, I talked about doing a an outreach called Musubi Tuesdays, uh, where we go down to Waimea Bay and we try to convince people that spam rice and nori is good and, and to eat and to take it and uh, so we can share, you know, and so, you know, if they're, if they're locals, they're like, oh, bro, I can have three, you know, if it's their locals, they want, you know, but everyone else are like, what is that? I'm like, it's good, just try it. Um, and so, and we share the gospel and so we'd be headed down to Waimea Bay and we see like, you know, when you're walking down from like the, the Catholic church over there where we park, it opens up and you just see this, the beauty of creation. I'm like, man, how could you deny a creator God? Like it looks too much like an artist's painting to deny that there's an artist behind it. You know, and so I'd be, we'd be sharing the gospel on the beach and, and one of my intros would be like, hey, like do you believe we live in a broken world? You know, and, and most people wouldn't agree, I mean, would agree with me. They'd be like, yeah, I can, yeah, it's kind of broken. You know, we'd get a couple no's here and they're like, I think the world's great. I mean, after, this is all before 2020, right? Because now we're like, eh, now it's a really easy intro. So if you're like, how do I share the gospel? do you believe we live in a broken world? Like, because now that we've experienced this last year and this year, it's one of the best openings. And if they still try to say no, you're like, okay, hold on, let me just pull up my news app real quick. Um, no, don't go anywhere. Come here, you know. Uh, just check this out, right? We just got to read a couple news headlines to show um, how things are going. And so I'd list off a thing of, you know, like a list of broken things in our world. And, you know, before they start crying, I'd cheer them up and go like, hey, like, you know, it's not all bad. Right, God is, God, there's like, when God made the earth, he made it good and full of love. And we still see traces of that. We got the love that we have for our family and friends. And we get, we get to enjoy his creation. And then I'd like point to Waimea Bay like, this is amazing. And then while I'm doing that, I would say, do you know who Albert Einstein is? Most people do. And, uh, and I say, he looked into the depths of the universe and into the depths of an atom. And says, there has to be an intelligent designer. You see, creation screams of God's glory and is a primary way that God has revealed himself. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. See, though Einstein wasn't a Christian, as one of the world's most brilliant scientists who ever lived, he saw the glory of God. He saw the handiwork of creation for what it is, God's work. In his years of studying the universe, in his own words, he said it led him to believe in a God who reveals himself in the harmony of all that exists. He later said that the religious inclination lies in the dim consciousness that dwells in humans, that all nature, including the humans in it, is in no way an accidental game. 
layman's terms. He's saying that if you look at the world and you look at the humans in it, there's no way we're an accident. Einstein, we can't be an accident. But, keep reading along, but a work of lawfulness that there is a fundamental cause of all existence. Huh. Behind anything that can be experienced, there is something that our minds cannot grasp whose beauty and sublimity reaches us only indirectly. And that's what Romans says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and in the creation of the world. So we are without excuse. See, I love it when, when we figure something out today with science, you know. But like the Bible like said that like a long time ago. Like I'm like, wow, Einstein, like you're really smart. Like you are, you're super smart, you're Einstein, right? But like the Bible already said that, mm, awkward. Like it's cool. No, like, oh, you're super smart. But uh, the Bible said that already, yeah. And, and so we don't need Einstein to tell us God already told us, amen? That God has put within each one of us and in his creation, an understanding of who he is. He's revealed himself to us in creation. Verse 21 says that, that they all, though they all knew God, that everyone somehow has known God, that God, and, and, and we'll go into this in chapter 2, but God has put within us an understanding of his law, whether we think we know it or not, right? But, but there's a universal morality that God has put in his image bearers, meaning we know right from wrong in general, right? God has revealed himself in creation and in us. And you don't have to admit to it or not, but because remember, check this out, we suppress the truth, okay? Our hearts and our minds are darkened. So that truth suppression, that darkening, the darkening of the mind, see, that gets passed down from generation to generation to generation till one day the world says there is no God. The Bible, the inspired word, is saying that all men are without excuse because God revealed himself in creation and within us, and we've rejected him. We don't honor him. We don't thank him. We actually try to take credit for the things that he's done and given us, and we try to seek to rob God of his glory, which won't work, by the way, but it will lead to a dark and unfulfilled and frustrating life. See, we've sinned against the God of heaven and earth. We all know, regardless of what we tell ourselves, that there is a creator whom we are utterly dependent and, and, and totally accountable to. See, people oppose the idea of a holy God because they know that God will keep them accountable to the sin that they want to hold on to. One pastor put it this way, every person, no matter how isolated from God's written word or the clear proclamation of his gospel, has enough divine truth both evident within and around him to enable them to know and be reconciled to God if their desire is genuine. And so an easy way to put it in like four simple things, the creator's power and deity are evident, all people know God, but they suppress this knowledge, and so everyone's without excuse before God. Now, if you're not convinced on that last one, we're going to spend like the next month explaining that out. Um, and so just hang with us. But as we read on, um, we don't just suppress the truth, we exchange the truth. What do we exchange it for? So our second point, we've all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've exchanged the worship of God for lesser things. So look back down with me, Romans 21 through 25. It says this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Has anyone ever been punked, like punked real bad? Right, there used to be a TV show um, called Punk where like there, there'd be like this big scam, like this big prank and this, this really well-crafted lie and people were freaking out and they'd be like, wait, Where's Ashton? Ashton, get out of here, Ashton, right? They're like, this has to be a lie. This can't be true, right? And see, we deal with this all the time, right? There's lies out there. The world and and the enemy, like, we're getting punked left and right, right? There there are a lot of well-crafted lies parading themselves like truths. And we just, we deal with these kind of harmlessly sometimes. Um, There's lies like uh, androids are better than Apple, right? And you're like, oh, man, they're falling for that one. And they go and buy a Samsung. You're like, oh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just messing with you guys. Um, there's other well-crafted lies that Hojo believes that his volleyball team is going to win in two weeks. <laughs> um, my money's on Pastor Mike. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. There's, uh, we've seen it in, in, in history and in culture. Uh, you know, like smoking was super cool, right? Like every movie star in every movie always had a cigarette in their mouth. Like, yeah, this is a cool thing to do. Celebrities smoked. It's awesome until they found out, oh, smoking gives you lung cancer, bad breath, and brown teeth. Mm, not so cool. Like maybe let's not do that, right? And so we realize that now, like smoking is not cool. That's not a lie anymore that we believe, right? But back then we were all fooled, not me. <laughs> um, and... Uh, there's this one, so like present day tense, like we just see these things like, uh, like light beer. I think it's hilarious. Like the light beer commercials. Like if you drink this light beer, you're going to look like this professional model. You know, it's like, no, you won't. Like you're going to drink eight of them and still gain weight. Like it's not going to happen. Um, there's lies, right? There's lies that we tell ourselves, okay? Like, like this one is very common. One more slice of pizza won't hurt me. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Like eight slices later, you're on the couch hurting, right? Um, here's one that we're, most of us probably are struggling, struggled with last night. I'm just going to stream one more episode. Oh, man. Just one more episode, right? Two seasons later. Is it morning? Like, what's going on? Sorry, I can't come into work. Like, you know, it gets crazy, right? But there are lies that are even more damaging, right? Lies like somehow endlessly scrolling through our phone, you know, is going to somehow satisfy us. And looking at the highlight reels of the world will bring us satisfaction. And so we're scrolling and you're like, man, maybe, maybe it's going to be the next post or the next video or the next, you know, clip or whatever that's going to just do it for me. I'm going to finally arrive. Come on, where is it? Where is it? Come on. And, you're, and we're waiting for that one thing, that one post, that one article, something that's going to somehow satisfy the anxiety and the uneasy and, uh, uneasiness inside of us. And it never does. You guys notice that? You're like, ah, and we just give up. And we're kind of unfulfilled, a little anxious. There's the lies. The lie that, that looking at porn isn't that bad. It's not bad. It could be doing something worse. It's, it's not hurting anyone. Right, but then we know it damages your mind and your heart. Right? It, it damages your immediate relationships. It can harm your sexual function for the rest of your life. You're like, oh, wait, the Bible said that anything outside of marriage sexually is wrong and bad for you? Oh, that's crazy. The Bible already said that? Wow. All right, there's lies like I don't need help with my addiction. I got it. Like I'm, I'm, I got a handle on it. I'm good. Like I'm working it out by myself. I don't need any help. I don't need to get accountable. Lies. 
And as damaging as these lies are, there's a, there's a lie that is greater than these lies, really at the root of them. Right? The lie goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I call it the, the greatest punked moment in history, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, God is like, I've created you to know me, to love me, to worship me and obey me, to trust me. All the world is for you to enjoy. But I'm going to ask you one thing. Trust me. And when I say don't eat from that tree, trust that my commands are good for you. Trust that I have a better idea of what's going on than you do. That I only want good things for you. So just don't eat from that tree or you're going to die. All right, then we see Satan come in and we see the first lies in the Bible. The first lie, right, Satan says, you will not surely die. Well, that was a lie. God literally just said, you're going to die. The first lie is that there's no consequence for sin. Yeah, there is. And it's deadly. The second lie is that, you know, if you eat from that tree, then you will be like God, knowing right from wrong. You don't need God anymore. You can be God. You'll know everything that he knows. So you'll be good. You'll be like, I don't need God. I'm just going to live on my own, away from God, apart from God. I want to be God. The two lies that we see right there in the garden. And here in Romans verse 21, right, it's crazy because as you read verse 21 through 25, think about Adam and Eve. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man, themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. See, this goes all the way back to the beginning. And it's still happening today. The lie is that anything other than God is worthy of our worship, devotion, and glory. The lie is that it's okay to be our own God or to make something other than God ultimate in our lives. The root of sin is what we see is idolatry. Idolatry is making something else, yourself or other things in your life, God. Right, this is why the first commandment in the Ten Commandments, for those of you Bible nerds out there, you shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. See, God knew if that you've just kept the first one, you'd probably be good with the rest. We see that we were created to worship God. And our hearts were created to worship. So God's like, hey, just make sure that you don't worship anything else before me. Because it's, it's going to ruin you. Right, so, so, so even though like, you know, we're created to worship, even if somebody's not religious, they're going to worship something. Their job, their money, their position in the world. Right, it's, it's, it's one, and then we suppress, when we suppress the truth of God, we live apart from him. And we end up worshiping the wrong thing. See, wrong thinking leads to wrong worship. Worship is to have adoration, devotion, and servitude for something. And here's the truth. We all worship something. So what happens when people refuse to acknowledge and depend on God as God? We don't stop worshiping. We just simply change what we worship. We must worship something. We are a purposed people. We have to live for something. There has to be something that captures our imagination and our allegiance. There has to be something that, where we find the resting place for our deepest hopes. This is the thing that we look to to calm our deepest fears. Or whatever that thing is, we worship it, we serve it. It becomes our bottom line. We can't live without it and defines and validates everything we do. What is that thing? What is that thing in your life? That thing that has captured your worship. So no judgment here. Um, 
I'm asking you guys for me. So me and my wife, we bit the bullet, and we let our kids play video games. All right. So, um, you know, and it's, it's cool. And, you know, we don't play a lot. Like, we limit our time. Like, uh, you know, just a little bit of time. And uh, we only play really one game in the house, uh, Super Smash Brothers. Let's go. And, uh, yeah, it's fun. Anyways, so Jonathan Edwards says that our hearts are idle factories. Okay. Now, I know that because I'm a human, and my heart constantly wants to try to make things into little idols that, I, that, we, you know, that we worship, right? We see that, like that we start obsessing over other things, or we see that in our own hearts. Well, I really see that in my own kids, um, you know, so we only play a little bit, and all they can think and talk about is like, Super Smash Brothers, oh, the Super Smash, and like, can we play today? And I'm like, no, dude, it's like a weeknight, like, do your homework, you know, like, calm down. Um, literally the other night, my five-year-old comes up to me with a $5 bill in his hand. He's like, Dad? Super Smash Brothers? And I'm like, oh, no, he's trying to bribe me. You know, I'm like, oh. And I'm like, I'm like okay, okay. So, so now we're like caught like, okay, do we like just get rid of video games because we see what he's doing? And just, you know, but then the fear is like, oh, when they turn 18, they're just going to be addicted to video games. And like, ah, I'm free and video games. And like, we're going to lose them, right? And on the other side, it's like, do we like, uh, you know, just show them how to manage their time and be responsible. And you can play a little bit, but other things are fun too. Like, so we're working that out. If you got wisdom on that, come see me after the sermon. We're still figuring that out. All right. So we all do this though. Like we see it in the kids, ha, 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 ha. But we, we do this, right? We, we, our hearts are idle factories. Like for me as a pastor, and I, and I meet with other pastors, we talk about this a lot. Something we can do is we can turn the ministry itself into an idol, like, like we'll put like, oh, we're so worried about the ministry and what's going on that we actually obsess over that more than just worshiping God and our relationship with him. And we got to be careful there. See, everybody idolizes something. And we see in this passage that Paul says they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. And it's a deadly exchange. The, the penalty of this is death. A deadly exchange. The name of this sermon. And this is what, what, what God's wrath is coming against. And it was a very common thing in the Roman Empire. They would make these little statues of these random little gods of animals and people and this and that. And they'd worship it. And most of the time when we think idols, we imagine little clay figurines or statues, little totem poles or tiki men, right? And I hope I didn't just ruin your cool little tiki man in your, in your living room, but it's literally like a spiritual carved idol, just saying, uh, no worries. But we can have a bonfire after church, bring your tikis, just kidding. Um, no, but it was a reality back then, but you know what? There are other idols and we still see them today. Um, I, got a, I got a quote here, and it's a long quote. I was hesitant, but I think it, it just does such a good job at capturing um, this concept. So we're going to do it. Um, I got slides. There's multiple slides. Just stick with me, okay? Um, pastor, author David Platt says this. When we think of worshiping idols and false gods, we often picture Asian people buying carved images of wood, stone, or gold, or African tribes performing ritualistic dances around burning sacrifices. But we don't consider the American man looking at pornographic pictures online or watching ungodly television shows and movies. We don't think about the American woman incessantly shopping for more possessions or obsessively consumed with the way she looks. We don't take into account men and women in the Western world constantly enamored with money and blindly engulfed in materialism. We hardly even think about our busy efforts to climb the corporate ladder, our incessant worship of sports, our temper when things don't go our way, our worries that things won't go our way, our overeating, our excesses, and all sorts of other worldly indulgences. Maybe most dangerous of all, we overlook this spiritual self-achievement and, self and religious self-righteousness that prevents scores of us from ever recognizing our need for Christ. 
We can't fathom a Christian on the other side of the world believing that a wooden God can save them. But we have no problem believing that religion, money, possessions, food, fame, sex, sports, status, and success can satisfy us. Do we actually think we have fewer idols to let go of in our repentance? The present tense lie that we still struggle with in this room is that if we worship and we glorify something else other than God, that that thing will satisfy our soul and our deepest longings. Somehow that thing will be our savior. And because we believe that, we've exchanged the worship of God for other things, searching for what only God can give. Right, we see this with Jesus and the woman at the well, right? He goes to the woman at the well and says, hey, you know, go fetch your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. No, you've had five. See, you've been going to this well of relationship, this well of seeking that, that unconditional love that, that it's, you're never going to get here on, from these people but only from God. See, I have, Jesus says, I have water that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. Right? And so we, we, we see him turning her to the only place she'll find her ultimate satisfaction, and that's God. And we see the world pushes out the lies that something other than God is worthy of worship. Something else can be your savior. And so we try to run to different things. We try to, to, to worship different things. Now, the first thing that I think most of us do is, is we run to ourselves, the God of self. Right? We saw that in, in the garden, and we, and we do this, right? So here's what we do. We have thoroughly convinced ourselves that a better version of us is going to be the God that saves us. Or we have this future version of us in our minds today that once we get there, we'll be saved from the, we'll be saved from the angst and the frustration. Right? That there's got to be something more feeling that if when we get there, it's going to go away. Right? So, so we set out trying to create a better version of us, a more attractive version, a wealthier version of us, a version of us with a sweeter car or the nice house. Right? We're going to better ourselves. And we begin to pursue that. Right? This is why the best-selling books aren't classics but self-help books. Right, it's a sad day when some of the classics are being replaced like, by books like Six Minute Abs. Right? Like we got, like, as, a, as a culture, we need to own up for that eventually. Right, so, so, so we work hard you know, to serve ourselves, to worship and, and devote our life to the God of self. We make life about us, about our growth, our progression. And because the better version of us, the future version of us will be our savior from our brokenness. That uneasy anxiety, that doubt that I struggle with. But here's what I'd like to lay before you. Ten years ago, you thought you'd be there today. How you doing? Still a little bit disappointed? This is the game. And we perpetually push it forward. See, here's, here's what's really crazy about it. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone who has lied to you more and disappointed you more than yourself. And yet, and yet at the same time, we simultaneously applaud our own sovereignty like, oh, look at us. Like, like I stink at life. Man, I'm a great God. Like, I, I can't really figure this thing out. But you know what? Trying, me trying on my own is better than surrendering to a God who, who loves me and who is worthy and cares for me and wants to guide me. Like, I'm just, I'm going to take care of it. You will not be able to satisfy what your soul needs. Only a God who knows you, loves you, and wants to redeem you can do that. A better version of you cannot save you, which leads us to our second well or the second God that we go after. And if we can't do it ourselves, we turn to others. Right? I can't believe how many of us think that other people will complete us. Right? The fracture in the foundation of every relationship, whether it be friendship or marriage or parent to child, is the fracture that you will satisfy me and complete me. 
Right? And if, if you put expectations on your friends like this, on your spouse, to fill that emptiness in you, you're just sowing conflict in your life. They can't do it. The problem is that that is an impossible weight for anyone to bear. It will crush them. See, almost every divorce has the broken part of their foundation an expectation for the other person to be what the other person was never meant to be. Where they should have found that in the creator of the universe. Instead, they expected that from the person, from this other person. And guess what? It's just not going to work. What about adultery? Adultery has at its roots, I need this person to be everything for me, whether that's emotionally or physically. Men make terrible gods. Can I get an amen, ladies? Right? Women make crummy gods. Men, don't say anything. Okay. But don't even get me started on kids. Right? Let's just make sure we're not raising our kids and teaching them by how we're raising them that they are God. Families should not revolve around their children. Love them, yes. Serve them, yes. Let them chase their God-given passions, but don't let them be the God of your home. Other common wells that we go to are the God of acceptance. We see this all over the place. Status, our job, or our role, right? There's a, the God of, of being good, a good fill-in-the-blank, right? I'm, my goal in life, my, my ambition is just to be a good, what is that? Our ability to perform, money, retirement, security, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a long, long list. This is just some of the main ones. We all know the things that our heart runs to, the things we give our lives to, the deceptive imitation gods that promise things they will never deliver. We feel it. We've, we've tried. We know it doesn't work, and yet we still worship it. We know what they are. It's the things that enter our mind when we wake up and we orient our lives around these things. This is what we've exchanged for God. And the lie is that that thing or person, that future goal is worthy of your life's worship. And the problem comes from giving any created thing our ultimate affection, which only God deserves and has the right to demand. And since our hearts are made to be centered on God, and he's the only one that can satisfy us, right? Nothing else actually does, but we keep going to other things and it doesn't work. No amount of stuff will comfort our loneliness. No amount of money will heal our relationships. No amount of drugs and alcohol will take away our pain. No amount of applause from the world will take away our fear of failure and not being loved. No amount of time and attention from that person will satisfy your need to be unconditionally loved and cared for. Nothing else is worthy of our worship and glory. Only Jesus is. And only in him can we have that comfort and love and acceptance and security, healing and provision that we all need. These are the things that he promises when we make him Lord. So let's not go running to the tree, right, trying to to be like him. Don't go running to the tree, right, to be our own gods. No, we want to trust God. We want to worship him and know that, man, by obeying him is where we actually find our center. The tragedy is that humanity we, that it strives for and fails to find what, what it wants when it could simply just receive it and enjoy it from God. But we suppress that truth. And here's, and here's a big part to the answer of why God's wrath is being revealed. We've suppressed the truth. We've gave into the lies and we've sinned against God by replacing him with lesser things. And so we're, experience his wrath. we're experiencing his wrath. So here's our last point. We've all experienced God's wrath and we feel its effects. See, the other lie in the garden was there was no consequences to our sin. But we know those are con- there's consequences, and one of those consequences is the wrath of God is being presently revealed. So we're going to read verse 24 through 32. It's a really long stretch. 
I'm going to actually even have it up on the slides because it's so long, I don't want you to lose you guys. So you can choose Bible, slide, whatever you want. All right. Verse 24, it says this. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, sorry, of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but get a, give approval to those who practice them. Woo, all right. Big passage there. Okay. Um, as a parent, something that you have to get really used to saying when your kids are small is like, hey, don't put that in your mouth. Don't put that in your mouth. Like, because the kid, they just, they find anything on the ground. They're like, ah, you know, you're like, no, uh, don't do that. It's not good for you. Um, but, you know, they're going for it. And, and there's, there's got to be a time, at some point in time, they pick something up. You know it's going to taste horrible. You know it's just not going to be good. And you're just like, don't eat it. And they're just like looking at you like, I'm going to eat it. And you're just like, all right. You know what? Fine, no, go for it. You put that in your mouth. Have fun, right? They put it in their mouth. It's disgusting. It's horrible. They're crying. You're like, oh. I'm like, see, you got what you wanted. I gave you what you wanted. There you go. Now you got to deal with the consequences, right? I mean, I don't, yeah, actually didn't do that. That's messed up. If you've done that to your kid, that's messed up. I'm just kidding. It's not. It's not. You got to teach your kids. Teach them. Um, there's another, uh, have you guys ever seen Home Alone? Home Alone, yeah, yeah, I think it's the best Christmas movie ever. I'm down to go toe-to-toe on that one. Um, so Kevin, right, he, uh, he wishes, he's like getting mad at his family. He wishes, like, I just wish I didn't have a family anymore. I don't want them. I wish they were gone, right? He wakes up the next day. He got what he wanted. No family. Then burglars try to come in and steal all that, you know, and things just go crazy. And, yeah, it's a pretty cool part of the movie. But it's not a good part. It's not good that robbers came to try to steal everything. Um, and so at the end of the movie, on Christmas morning, now he's praying. Better thought, Kevin. Um, and he prays that, you know, Lord, I mean, he's like, just, I just want my family back. Like, I just want my family back. Like, I realized what I wanted wasn't good for me. I just want my family back. And, you know, he gets his family back, right? And so what we see is that he got what he wanted, but it actually wasn't good for him. God's judgment on godlessness and wickedness is to give us what we want. Do you guys see how many times we see the words God gave them up in this passage? Three times, right? He gave them up in the lust of their hearts. He gave them up to their sinful desires. He gave them up to their dishonorable passions. He gave them up to a debased mind. See, that word sinful desire or lust is the word epithumia, right? Literally, it means over-desire. He gave us up to our over-desire, an all-controlling drive and longing. See, the main problem of our heart is not so much desires for bad things, but our over-desire for good things, our turning of created good things into God's, objects of our worship and service. And the worst thing that can happen to us is that we are given over to our heart's over-desire. This is the wrath of God, to give us what we want too much, to give us over to the pursuit of the things we have put in place of him, 
the worst thing God can do to human beings in the present is to let us reach our idolatrous goals. Because here we see the consequences of our sin and idolatry are horrible. This is what happens when God gives us over, right? Women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. When we are our own God, we do what we want. When we worship ourselves, our desires are, are what we worship. When we worship our sexuality, we're going to do whatever we want. And it leads to the ruin of our hearts. And it leads to the breakdown of God's design in the world and the God's design between husband and wife. See, this isn't the only sin, right? The only, the only sexual sin, Right? But we do see homosexuality and the things that we're seeing today with the transgender issues and the LGBTQ and all the rest community, right? And, 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 and it's, it's coming on us and it's super prevalent, right? These are the consequences of sin. That's what the word is saying. But lest we forget, they're not the only sexual sin, right? The word is very clear that there are more sexual sins that are prevalent in our culture, and yet our church doesn't really seem to, to harp on these as much as we do with the transgender and homosexual issues. And the sad thing is, is that all our sexual sin is a disorientation and a disorder of God's design for sexuality. A man and a wife and how God has made us. It goes all the way back to worshiping the wrong thing and exchanging the truth for a lie. When we're our own God and our pursuits are ultimate, we do whatever we want to do. We live however we want to live. We sleep with whoever we want to sleep with. And we ignore God's good design. See, there's a whole list after the explanation that men and women exchange their natural function. Do you guys see that in verse 29 through 31? It doesn't stop there. A lot of the church wants to stop there and like, yeah, look at those people going against God's design. But then it continues on with the list and they're like, oh, wait. Wait, we, we, we struggle with some of those things. Oh, we're a part of this too? See, as a church, we need to do better here. We got outreaches in the prisons to murderers and thieves. We have Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous and Celebrate Recovery to reach alcoholics and drug addicts and those who struggle with addiction. We have all kinds of ministry to people who are struggling with sin. But what are we doing to reach the LGBT community? What are we doing? We get angry and mad when we see the, the, you know, that community push their agenda on TV shows and movies. We're like, oh, not again, we say. Another one. But we're totally fine with watching content that's full of envy, murder, deceit, gossip, sexual morality, adultery. But don't you dare have one of the, the characters be homosexual. That's just too far. Now, don't get me wrong. We see the agenda, and I don't think it's right. It's breaking God's law, and it saddens my heart that that kind of stuff is everywhere. We're praying for God's wisdom to help me and my wife raise our boys in this crazy world that is so against God. We see them trying to normalize it in our society and in our day. But what we don't see is they've already normalized all the other things on this list that we need to confront as well. Things that are still clinging to our own lives. With that said, we should have grace for anyone who is struggling with anything because we're in the same boat. Amen? Because we all need the grace of God. We all need someone to reach out to us and to share the love of Jesus Christ. And we should be doing the same. We need to learn how to reach out to those struggling with sin without compromising the truth. Jesus did it very well. You think the homosexual is different from the prostitute and the tax collector and the drunkards that Jesus reached out to? Or even worse, the Pharisee? 
which we'll get into in a couple weeks. See, no one escapes the fact that we have all at some point in time worshiped something else. And guess what? God's wrath is being revealed. He, he gives us what we want. He's like, here's the consequences. Go and live with it. Do you want to worship other things? Guess what? Idolatry comes with consequences. You want to worship yourself? Guess what? You're going to deal with envy. Because you're constantly comparing yourself to others, trying to be the best at whatever you do. And, you, and, you're, and you're putting your, you put your projected self out there, the projected version that you want everyone else to see, the, the version of you that you want everyone else to believe, hoping they'll like you, respect you, affirm you, hoping they'll love you, struggling with thoughts like, man, do people like me? Do people like him or, or her more than they like me? And we struggle here because we're God, right? And so we end up struggling with, with envy and bitterness and gossip because we're constantly trying to make ourselves look good and feel better indirectly by putting other people down behind their back. This is self-worship. Self-worship means we're constantly competing with other people in the game of life trying to make ourselves ultimate God. And then when we make it to the top, then we, we lean the other way and we become haughty and boastful. The consequences of our sin is more sin, deeper sin that leads to the breakdown of our relationships. And it's self-worship that leads to so much of this strife. When money and status and power are your God, you're going to see a lot of heartless men and women. Hey, sorry, sorry, Johnny, I can't play with you right now. I need to go, I need to work. Sorry, honey, I can't go out this weekend. I have to work. I got to work really hard to, to maintain our lifestyle, to maintain the amount of money that we have, to maintain my status. So I'm sorry. Ruthless men and women do whatever they need to get to do to get their status, to get their money to get their security. Instead of putting our faith in God, they, we can become faithless and put our faith in things that won't last, material things. When pleasure and comfort are your God, you're going to see a lot of foolishness, right? Foolish. When pleasure and comfort are your gods, it's going to look really foolish, right? We, we, we run to our TVs and our toys and our video games and our phones. Again, not all bad things, but a lot of foolishness happens in that area, we can be foolish with our time. Like I was going to do a whole, th I mean, I was going to go on this whole thing, like how our phones are idols, because that's what everyone's thinking. Like, what about my phone? Like, yeah, you got issues. Um, right, I was almost going to do a sermon called like foolishness of phones, but that's like a whole other thing, right? But I'm not going to get into that. But we see that there, that there is that like when we, when we seek, when this is our God, things break down. We're going to see disobedience to parents. We're going to see deceit. We're going to see trying to do whatever we can to enjoy the pleasure um, what we want to do against God, and we're hiding it, and we're being deceitful about it. When we're not worshiping God rightly, evil comes out of our hearts. And all of this stuff happens. Paul's like, don't you see? Paul's saying, look at the world. Look at their struggles. Look at your heart. Look at your pain. Look at the problems. He's saying, look at 2020. Look at the riots. Look at the racial tensions. Look at the economy. Look at the things that are going on in this world. And he's saying, this is the wrath of God being revealed. God says, oh, that's what you want? Okay, you can have it. Then deal with the consequences of your sin. Deal with the consequences of your idols. Deal with the consequences of your false gods and living without me. If you lived with me and for me, I would leave you into a life of abundance, righteousness, and peace. But life without me, it leads to brokenness. Look at the news. Turn on your TV. Look out your window. Look at your own heart. But God's saying, but I've done something about it. 
I've done something about it. I've done something to heal people. I've done something to heal communities. I've done something to heal nations. I've done something about it. God came to rewrite the world in Jesus. Jesus came to teach people how to love God and love others, how to worship God. God's like, I came myself so you would have everything you need. And so why is it as God's people do we run back to things that we weren't supposed to run to? Why, and we're so confused on why it's so hard to follow Jesus. Where is our heart? Oh God, would you grab our hearts? Would you enrapture us with your glory that we wouldn't dream of worshiping or living for anything else? Help us to combat the lies. And how do we do that? How do we combat the lies? We saturate our minds with Jesus, who is the truth. We saturate our minds with his word, which is the truth. And we are directed by and keep in step with the spirit of truth. We need a moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus where his spirit can guide us into truth. Our truth intake needs to surpass our lie intake because it comes at us every day. And if we're not meditating on the grace of God, we're not thinking about the gospel of God, we're not dwelling on the good news. The enemy and the, and the world and ourselves, we, tell our, we even tell ourselves lies. Lies are coming at us from all over the place. This is why we need the gospel. This is why Paul is so eager to preach the gospel. We need to constantly preach good news to ourselves to keep us from running back to the bad news. See, Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sinned against God, it fractured the world. It fractured our relationship. We ran to things and we worshiped other things that led to our ruin, right? We, we sinned against God. We enslaved ourselves to the things of the world. We've done all this and the Bible says that the punishment for this exchanging of, of a lie for God the punishment is death in God's wrath but you see God in his absolute love for us he didn't leave us here no God says I'm going to make a way for them I'm going to bring them back to myself God in his in his mercy and his love sent Jesus for us the one and true God came down even though that we exchanged him for a lie even though we exchanged him for other things there was a greater exchange that happened on the cross that's even greater than the exchange that we've done they call it the great exchange where Jesus exchanged his life for ours his righteousness for our sin and he says my exchange is more powerful than what you've done and it can conquer the power of sin and death There is grace and forgiveness for you today. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough. That's the whole point of the cross. There is no sin too big. There is no distance too far that you think you've run that God's love and grace and mercy cannot overcome today. There's a real wrath being revealed now and a wrath that's coming in the future for those who do not trust in Christ. But the word says that Jesus took the wrath of God on our behalf. That the truth that we suppress, yeah, that truth became flesh. And then he went to the cross on our behalf and died so we can live. And so we look to the truth and we worship him and him alone. This is the good news that saves us from the bad news. Jesus, who is the truth, came to set us free. So we need to meditate on these things. Who created the universe? He alone is worthy of our praise and adoration. Who sustains lives in the world around us at all times by his power? He alone is worthy of worship and adoration. Who took on flesh to live and die on our behalf and rose again, defeating death and sin? He alone is worthy of worship and adoration. Who's redeemed us and forgave us and even right now is working for our good, even though we don't see it? He alone is worthy of worship and praise. When John got a revelation of the throne of God, he said he saw 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And so this morning we cast down 
our crowns before the throne, before the God who is worthy of our, of our worship. We worship him for, for the fact that he alone is God and we are not, that he is holy other. He alone is king of kings and Lord of lords. He alone. And for these reasons, we worship him. And the crazy thing is, is that, man, when we do that, when we rewrite our lives to worship God, our hearts heal. Our souls are restored. We find the purpose for our life. The rest, it makes our life make sense. Like, oh, this makes sense. His glory and our good are intertwined. This was a design from the beginning that, that when we live for him and trust him and obey him, that's actually our best life. And so this morning, God is calling us to surrender our idols, to remember what we've been saved from, to not run back to the things that will not satisfy and lead us to brokenness. He's reminding us that living for his glory and worshiping him is where we find our purpose. And when we leverage our lives for his glory and his kingdom, every relationship becomes an opportunity to see God move, heal, and restore. Every possession turns into a tool to be used for his glory, to see the love of Jesus move forward in our lives. Everything we have, every gift he's given is now no longer an idol, but a platform to be used to enjoy God and to make much of him. This morning, God is calling us to lay down our idols, to confess and repent of sin. See, no one in this room is perfect. I'll be the first to admit it. We all need to come before God and get right with him. Ask him to examine our hearts to see what's been on the throne of our heart and to put him back on it. This morning we were coming to him and asking him, help us to love you more. Help us to want you more. Help us to desire you more. Help us to worship you with our lives. And so, Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown us your love and your grace in Christ and in the gospel. Lord, that we can't do it on our own, so you did it. Lord, you see where we've been running. You see the things that we have been turning to, Lord. And we need your help. Father, would you do that miraculous work in our hearts? Would you do that saving work? Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you today, that they would turn to you, Lord people who've been far from you that would turn to you, that they would know that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. They're only going to be met with love and grace and forgiveness and mercy. That's who you are. So God, we just pray you would do that in this room. Increase our love for you. Increase our, increase our worship of you. Help us, God. We need your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.